Father, as we come before you, Lord, we have tried to ready our hearts as best we can to lay aside partiality, favoritism, and to approach you with humility. So we pray that you would minister to us, that you would help us, Lord, to have faith, not just in word, but also in deed, especially the deeds of loving each other and showing each other mercy and not rash judgment. Please come to us in this time and glorify yourself through your Son, Jesus Christ, by the power of your Spirit. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the one point from this passage is that saving faith works. Saving faith works. I read the statement at the beginning that that we exist in particular to love one another and reach the lost so that Jesus can transform lives and build his church. That's what we say in our, our statement. That we're, this is faith, Bible, fellowship. Well, how is that faith working out for us? What kind of faith does work? And James tells us that saving faith works. What kind of faith do we have? Do we have this kind of faith? Or do we have another kind of faith? James helps us run some diagnostic tests. So our main point this morning is that saving faith works. And the first thing that James wants us to know, which is also the central point of this text, is that faith without works is dead. Number one is faith without works is dead. And we see that phrase a couple times here in this text. Look with me at those first three verses there. What good is it, brothers, if someone says that he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking in daily food, one of you says to him, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things that they need for the body. What good is that? So James begins with two rhetorical questions here. First, what good is faith that doesn't produce a lifestyle of obedience? And second, can such so-called faith save you? The implied answer to both of those questions is it's no good and no, it cannot save you. And James is making two points here when he gets into this analogy of of coming across somebody who's poorly clothed and lacking in their daily food. First, he's referring to the type of works that we should all do, right? We should love neighbor. We saw that in verse 8. We should show mercy. We saw that in verse 12 and 13. Christians should be inclined towards the poor, towards the needy. We should be burdened both for the physical and the spiritual needs of a place like North Africa, for instance. But James also assumes that real faith does save. Because he's asking this question, can that faith save him? He's assuming what we already saw in chapter 1, verse 8, that, that it's through God's word, sorry, verse 18, that of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth. So he's assuming that genuine faith does save So before we ask, what kind of faith do we have, what kind of faith do I have, we have to define faith first and foremost. A couple things that faith is not. Faith is not an emotion. We tend to think of it that way in our culture, but faith is not an emotional state that we work ourselves up into when the music crescendos to a certain point, right? Faith is not a private preference. Faith is not just my religious preference, you know, what I put on my Facebook profile or my Twitter bio. Faith is not how I just personally self-identify in the realm of the ethereal and spiritual. Faith is also not 
a belief in faith itself. In other words, when I say that I have faith, that's not to say that I'm, I'm looking back on a moment when I maybe had some personal spiritual experience, and that's where my faith is placed. Faith is not faith in faith itself. All of these false definitions, they're, they're just words. All of those false types of faith are just words. The, uh, new, the New City Catechism, um, which is based on some historic catechisms, defines faith in Jesus Christ in this way. Faith in Jesus Christ is acknowledging the truth of everything that God has revealed in his word, trusting in him, and also receiving and resting on him alone for salvation as he is offered to us in the gospel. So it's that receiving, it's that resting on Christ alone as he's offered to us in the gospel. Historically, theologians have divided faith into, into three parts. Knowledge, notitia in, in, in Latin, assent or assensus, and trust or fiducia. If you're, if you're part of a, a nonprofit board, for instance, you, if you're on the board, you have fiduciary responsibility. There's a financial trust there. Well, so faith assumes a couple things. First, it assumes you know what's true, right? That's knowledge. The second, it, it assumes that you assent to what's true. You've not only heard the truth, but you agree that it's true. But the third component there is critical. Fiducia, trust. Trust is that receiving and resting on Christ alone for salvation. So faith, faith is not, you know, we, we use the phrase, faith is a virtue. Faith is not this meritorious thing that if I have a certain percentage of it, that earns me something in God's eyes. Faith is not this force um, within me. Faith itself is useless apart from the object of faith. Faith is empty-handed. It's an empty-handed response to God so that it can grab on and cling on to Christ. We say that we're justified in the eyes of a holy God by faith alone, but that's shorthand for the fact that we're justified by Christ alone. Faith unites us to Jesus. Jesus is the one that does the saving. So as we talk about faith being dead without works, there's three ways that this has been formulated historically and Two of them are false. So think of it as an equation, right? Get, you know, mentally put yourself back into your math classroom. Sorry to bring up some traumatic memories there for some people, but mentally put yourself back in that room and imagine a couple of different equations on the board. The first one would be faith plus works equals justification. That is salvation, that, that moment at which you are set right with God decisively and brought into the family of God. Uh, as much as parts of the text here sound like it's saying faith plus works equals justification, that is false. That's not what James is saying. Some branches of what calls itself Christianity have maintained that. The Roman Catholic Church has maintained that since the Council of Trent right after the Reformation. Another false formulation would be faith equals justification minus works. So in other words, faith saves you, but it doesn't do anything else we would call this antinomianism which is the the idea that that for the believer there's there's nothing inherent to being a christian that involves submitting to the law of god sometimes this comes across a, a, maybe another term easy believism 
Right? All you do is, is believe. There's nothing more to it than that. This is the, the anti-lordship position. In other words, that you can have Jesus as your Savior, but not necessarily your Lord. Maybe you want him as your Lord. Maybe not. Maybe you figure that out later in life. James does not allow for that possibility. The correct way that we would formulate this is that faith equals justification plus works. It's attributed to Martin Luther, but um, John Calvin actually said, we're saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. We're saved by a faith that uh, we're saved by faith alone in Christ alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Faith always brings with it works. There's no such thing as a carnal Christian. Maybe you've heard that term, a, a believer who who wants Christ as Savior, but but not as Lord deep in his heart. Martin Luther did say in his commentary on Galatians that idle faith is not justifying faith. That's I-D-L-E, doing nothing. Not I-D-O-L, as in idolatry, but idol. Faith that does nothing. Lazy faith is not justifying faith. Faith, with, faith without works is dead. Lazy faith is dead faith. So then James explains how faith without works is useless. And first he makes that point that to care is to take action. And he talks about this brother or sister that would be poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. To care about suffering means to do something about it. I did some of the math earlier in the week. And everybody in this room right now, with about a $27 monthly contribution, could send the missionary, whose name I won't use because this is being recorded, to North Africa, fully supported. So that would make up... All 39% of the support amount remaining. Uh, it's, it's, it's easy to say that you care about something, but faith requires action. And of course, I think we can also look at our own hearts and realize that sometimes it's easier, maybe, to say that we love the abstract, Arabic-speaking, North African person living in the Sahara Desert. We, want, we love them. We want them to get the gospel. It's, it's easy to love that abstraction, but it's difficult to love the person sitting across the aisle or in the pew in front of you. You don't have pews anymore, chair. But you know what I'm saying. It's easier to love the person over there than it is to love sometimes the people in our own midst, our fellow believers in Christ. So James makes the point that if you care, you have to take action. But... Second, faith without works is not just hypocritical. It is hypocritical, but it's more than hypocritical. James is actually illustrating that it's absurd. Absurd on the level of, you know, in Rudolph, there's the island of misfit toys, and there's the boat that can't float there, and there's the, the cowboy that rides the ostrich. It's, it's that level of absurdity. It belongs on that special island because he, he says this, what good is it? If one of you says to this hungry, homeless person, go in peace, be warmed and filled. Think about that. Does, does walking up to somebody and saying, be filled, does that, does that create a sandwich out of thin air? Does it appear in their laps? It's absurd. It's an absurdity. It, tweeting about world hunger, you know, it doesn't, it, it might be 280 characters, but it, that is a zero calorie tweet. Even adding hashtag be filled at the end, right? That doesn't do anything to actually feed someone. Another example of this type of absurdity would be uh, if, if you're someone like a family member of mine who's just sitting around waiting for them to invent the workout pill. 
You can't just take a pill and that's your exercise for the day, right? You can't, you can't roll off the couch and look in the mirror and, and look at your, your body and maybe it's flabby and say, six pack up here. It doesn't work that way. You can't speak things into being. And faith that is just spoken words into thin air without any follow-up is absurd. It doesn't accomplish what it claims to accomplish. Claiming to love someone without showing it. Claiming you love your wife, but never saying it or, or never demonstrating it with your actions. Never putting her needs above your own. That's absurd. Saying we love our brothers and sisters in Christ, but immediately assigning motives to people that we disagree with is absurd. Proverbs 27.5 says, Better is an open rebuke than hidden love. Love that is hidden, love that is never demonstrated, is worthless. So faith that doesn't affect our attitude and our actions towards the world around us and towards our fellow believers is absurd. So we have to do some inventory here. Is our faith more than words? What would onlookers in York, in the surrounding community, say about us? What is our witness? Because this text deals with a couple things, but not just the abstract theological issue of our justification before God. It also deals with the missiological issue of our justification before other men. How do we get off calling ourselves Christians? Is our faith just words? And then in verse 17, so also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. So there's two kinds of faith, true and false, alive and dead. We tend to think of faith as a blood test, right? It's this invisible thing, but if you run a panel, you'll know what's in you. Uh, I don't know what the exact moment was that I trusted in Jesus, but maybe if I find somewhere in the calendar that day that I prayed that sinner's prayer or something like that, and we, we obsess about this invisible moment where we went from not having faith to having faith. And as important as the moment of conversion is, James is encouraging us not to think about faith as a, a blood test necessarily, but more like a growth chart. Look at where you are on the growth chart, because things that are alive grow and work. Things that are dead are lazy and do nothing and shrink and shrivel and decay. Lazy faith is false faith. Real quick, I want to take a detour into Matthew chapter 7. We read from the Sermon on the Mount at the beginning of our service here this morning. And this is just a little while later. Matthew chapter 7, verses 15 to 20. And the context here is false prophets. But it can be applied beyond that as well. Jesus says, beware of false prophets who come into you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. What kind of fruit comes from an apple tree? Apples. If something else is coming off of it, you don't have an apple tree. And it's the same in the life of a Christian. If love and mercy and the fruit of the Spirit are not coming from our lives, then what you have is not necessarily a Christian. At least we need to ask ourselves that question. Every tree, verse 19, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. You say, well, but religion is personal. 
right? It's private. It's a personal thing. At least that's what our culture would say. What, what about my neighbor across the street, right? He's an atheist, uh, but he's on the PTA board. He helps out at the soup kitchen downtown, you know, two times a month. He's a good person. He's moral. He's got healthy, happy children. He's got a thriving marriage. You know, maybe me, I'm more pious, intellectual, kind of inwardly focused spiritually, but maybe there's works people like that, and there's faith people, different categories, different expressions of piety, of spirituality for different people. Who's to say which one is right? right? Not all of us can be uh, the person doing all these things, and not all of us can be the person going through the religious motions once a week. So, you know, who, who knows? James anticipates that exact question in verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. That's essentially the same objection there. Our first point was that faith without works is dead. But our second is that dead faith is demonic. Works are so vital to living faith that that dead faith is actually demonic. And look at what James says next. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So faith and works are inseparable. Why? Because works reveal the reality of faith. The proof is in the pudding. James won't allow us to to abstract works and faith so that you can have faith without works or works without faith. He, He condemns both. You talk about the atheist, you know, who's a good person, maybe the the person who's spiritual but isn't as active. Well, God's word is an equal opportunity offender, and everybody is just as guilty before the judgment seat of God. And by the way, to that hypothetical atheist out there, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 14, 23, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So there's no such thing as, as good works that are genuinely pleasing to God. They might be humanly good. Good in the civic realm, but there's no such thing as a, a lifestyle that pleases God, that is, is genuinely God-glorifying, that isn't the overflow of love for God. If there's no faith, then the result is sin. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. And without looking at a person's works, we can't distinguish between real faith and demonic faith. Verse 19, you believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So go ahead. Prove to me that you're a Christian without making any reference to your lifestyle. James essentially says, I dare you. Oh, okay. So you believe God is one? A reference to the Shema in Deuteronomy chapter 6. This was the phrase that every Jew knew by heart. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Right? That's the, that's the fundamental foundation of, of the, not only the Jewish faith, but the, for the Christian faith as well. The whole of Scripture is the oneness of God, the, the singularity of the being of God, his identity as Yahweh. And he says, okay, you believe that? You believe that God is one? Good for you. So do the demons. Can you demonstrate to me that you're genuinely a Christian without making reference to um, just words that any demon could theoretically utter? Because let me tell you, a demon could nail a doctrinal quiz, right? Any ordination test, a demon could nail it. He's saying, prove to me beyond that. Remember that threefold definition of faith. Demons have the knowledge, 
right? They, they know the claims of Scripture, of, of what is true, and they have assent. They agree that it's true. They know that there's one God. They've met him, yet they don't have trust, fiducia. They don't have the third thing. Their, their actions and their affections are turned against God. And even notice, there is emotion involved, but true faith isn't just an emotional experience. Notice, he says, even the demons believe and shudder. They tremble in fear. They shudder at the thought of seeing this holy God who's going to judge them someday. We might have all sorts of emotional religious experiences ourselves on the positive side or the negative side. Maybe it's fear of hell. Right? I don't want to go to hell, so I guess I'll go to church or something. Or ecstasy in worship. Just I, I love when the, the music gets to this certain point in the buildup. But having emotional experiences does not equal trust, that saving part of faith. So we have to ask ourselves, are we, as the kids discussed in Sunday school, like, like the, the foolish man who builds his house on the sand? In other words, who knows the truth but doesn't live in accord with it, doesn't have a lifestyle of obedience? Or are we like the wise man who builds his house on the rock, which is also... From the Sermon on the Mount. Or are we are we just <laughs> confessing a demonic faith? If you were to be tried for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you in your lifestyle? Let's be honest and transparent. This this should make all of us sweat, right? This should make us all feel pretty uncomfortable. All this talk of work, all this talk of the effort of a genuine believer. And we return and we think, well, yes, but, you know, we, we believe in sola fide, right? We believe that we're saved by faith alone. So doesn't faith alone save? And we talked about that already a little bit. Yes, it does. The third point is that saving faith is working faith. I want to look at verses 20 and on to the end. Do you want to be shown, O foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And we tend to single out verse 24 there where it says, you see that a person is saved not by faith alone, but by works, justified by works and not by faith alone, rather. And so how does that square away with passages that maybe we can't quote it chapter and verse, but we know it viscerally, Romans 3.28, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law, is what Paul says to the church in Rome. How do we square these two things away? There are some theological mysteries in Scripture that we will spend eternity unwinding. Right? The Trinity. How can God be three in one? This isn't one of them. This is not one of those mysteries. Scripture is in harmony with itself. And we can trust God's word. How? Because it's the same terms being used in a different sense, different meanings, one in a technical sense, but one in another sense. 
There's two terms here that are used differently to accomplish different things by Paul and James. The term justification for Paul in the book of Romans, which we just studied last year, it's the moment that we are set right with God instantly at conversion, right? Where we are counted as righteous in Christ, legally, finally, forensically declared righteous in the eyes of a holy God, even though we're not on the basis of what Christ has done for us in his death and resurrection for sinners. For James, the term justification refers not to that moment specifically, but the way that we are publicly vindicated before God and before our neighbors who are watching us. Vindicated as being what we really are, what we really claim to be, especially on the last day when we stand before God. You see this language in verse 22 where faith is completed by works. So it's fulfilled. It's brought to its fullness. It's completed. It's vindicated. Jesus uses the same language in Matthew chapter 11. He says wisdom is justified by her children. And the claim to have wisdom is justified by do you live wisely is what's being said there. It's that same sense of vindication, of, of being proved. But both James and Paul agree that faith alone in Christ is what decisively brings you into God's family. Remember James chapter 1 verse 18, of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, not by good works, by the word of truth, so that we would be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So they both agree that faith in Christ and the gospel is what saves. The other term that's used in two different senses is the term works. For Paul, in places like Romans 3.20, Romans 3.28, it's works of law. In other words, works done with the idea that by obeying God's law, I'm somehow going to earn something from him. I'm going to merit something in terms of my salvation, my standing with God. Things like circumcision, things like obeying the Ten Commandments. For Paul, works of law is what's done for the purpose of merit. For James, when he talks about works, these are the genuine acts that come from a heart of obedience, flowing from faith. Paul has the same concept when he talks about how Abraham walked in the footsteps of faith in Romans 4.12 or, or how he encourages us throughout his epistles to walk by the Spirit. So this is taking action because of what you believe and know to be true. It's not trying to earn brownie points with God. And what James and Paul both agree on is that if we are not living in accord with our profession of faith, we should sweat. We should be uncomfortable. And I want to just look at Abraham and Rahab because they're mentioned in the text and then close with some application. So underneath this head that saving faith is a working faith, if you follow the story of Abraham's life, you would actually reach the same conclusion. So James quotes from Genesis 15 verse 6, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So that came first. God made the promise to Abraham that, that he would be the father of a nation that, that we know would, would produce the Messiah. God made that promise first, and Abraham knew, assented, and trusted in that. He believed it. And at that point in time, he was counted as righteous before God. James quotes this as well with the understanding that it is an established reality already. Abraham 
the moment he trusted in God, possessed saving faith. But it still needed to be expressed in his life. Paul fleshes this out in Romans 4. What shall we say then was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. But not before God. For what does the scripture say? Paul quotes the same passage. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And then in verse 10, how then was it counted to him before he was circumcised? Before he did the prescribed action in God's law. He was already justified by faith. So this is why we're here. What unifies the people in this room in spite of disagreements, tensions, and hostilities? It's this, that Genesis 15.6 is for us. We have the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who knew no sin to be sin so that in him we might be the righteousness of God. And like Abraham, we become friends of God. I love the way Jason began the service in thinking of the fact that we have a Savior that literally died for us. We don't get along with each other, yet here we are, enemies of God, and God takes on flesh to literally be flayed alive for our sake. That's good news. As soon as we believe that, we're counted as righteous. Then later in Abraham's story comes when his faith is vindicated by his works in Genesis 22. So Genesis 15, then you get to Genesis 22 and you see it publicly vindicated that he had this saving faith. And this is what James refers to when he offered up Isaac on the altar. So if you're, if you're not overly familiar with the context in Genesis, Isaac was this promised child, this miraculous baby through whom this nation leading to Christ would be born. And God had promised in the previous chapter in Genesis, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. Yet in the very next chapter, go ahead and sacrifice him to me. And Abraham believes the original promise so much that he's willing to risk and obey. And he trusts God to work it out. And he says God will provide for himself a lamb for the sacrifice in Genesis 22, 8. In the book of Hebrews, in chapter 11, verse 19, tells us that he concluded that God was even able to raise Isaac from the dead. So he figures God's promise is true. He'll work it out one way or another, even if he has to raise Isaac from the dead. And when Abraham acts in accord with that faith, that's when it's justified. That's when he's vindicated. And the angel of the Lord stops him from killing his son and says to him, now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. So his faith proves to be genuine. Do we pass the test? Do we risk? Do we obey God even when it makes no sense to us? Do we count the cost of discipleship like Jesus says in Matthew 10 and in other places that whoever doesn't pick up his cross and follow me is not worthy to be called my disciple? Are we prepared to pay the cost like Abraham did. James also makes reference to Rahab the prostitute here. In the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. 
So it's the same logic in her story. She had heard from a distance on the news. She turned into, tuned into CNN, you know, Canaanite News Network. She heard that, that the Israelites had been rescued from, 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 uh, from Egypt. She heard about the exodus. She hears about the conquest. And, you know, they're, they're steaming over all of these peoples throughout Canaan. And she believes, wow, okay, this God is genuine. This God is real. I should fear him. I should trust him. But that faith didn't do her any good until what? Until the spies came to her home and she had the opportunity to aid and abet them and avert destruction in the conquest of Jericho. Saving faith works. Working faith saves. Real faith expresses itself in action. And if it isn't expressing itself in action, then we should question whether or not we have it. Look at this last verse here. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Follow the logic there. You have a parallel. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so faith apart from works is dead. So in this analogy, all right, we would think naturally, okay, that, that my body is the works and faith is the animating principle inside of it. But actually, faith is the body in this analogy. And works is compared to the spirit or the breath. Well, James' point isn't that your works come first and then your faith comes, or that your works produce your faith or give source to your faith in some way. Faith doesn't derive its life source from works. That would contradict everything that he said before. What it does mean is that your profession of faith is dead without obedience, just like your body is dead when it's separated from its spirit. Obedience is the breath that fills the lungs of faith. If you're feeling tired or conflicted in your spiritual life, maybe it's time to just roll off the spiritual couch and obey. It's this aerobic force in your Christian life. Without this air of obedience filling your lungs, filling the body of your faith, your faith is dead. Saving faith is working faith. So three quick ways in which we can apply this. First, we need to trust Christ. Your faith is weak, and if it's not producing works, the solution isn't to just go out and work harder. The solution is look to Christ. Look to the object of your faith. Remember that faith is this empty-handed response to Jesus that says, I know I need to be saved. I'm grabbing onto you. And if you're in Christ, you are counted as righteous, just like Abraham. You're a friend of God. Just like Rahab... The bride of Christ is this former prostitute living in a hostile city waiting for her better Joshua, her conquering king, to return. And until he returns, we wave the scarlet cord of faith in the blood of Christ, just like she signaled that she was ready for the spies to rescue her. That's us. Trust Christ. Look to him. He gives us what we need in order to live in this way. And so second, not only should we trust Christ We must prove it. Because Abraham and Rahab, they were willing to risk it all. Willing to risk their children. Willing to risk their relationships with family. We have to ask and take inventory. What has your faith in Christ cost you? What does it cost me? Because if our faith doesn't cost us anything in terms of lost opportunities, sins that we've had to forsake, relationships that have been severed, harsh words that we've had to withhold and bite our tongue, Forgiveness that we've had to lavish on other people who don't deserve it at great cost to ourselves. 
time spent serving God, if we're not, if, if we're not counting the cost, are we for real? And finally, we need to work out our salvation. We need to work out. There is no Christian workout pill. Faith without works is dead, so we need to work it out. You might know that phrase from Philippians chapter 2, verse 12, right? Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that it is God who, who works in you, both to will and to do according to his good pleasure. Right? So we're saved by God, but we have to work that out. We don't have to work for it, but we have to work it out in our lives. In every ramification that it means for our church, for our relationships, our community, our families and marriages. And also note that in Philippians 2, when Paul writes that we need to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, the context is the beginning of chapter 2, where Paul says, Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind, doing nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, counting others more significant than yourselves, looking not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. We have to work that out with fear and trembling. Let me pray. Lord, we come before you and acknowledge that uh, this is hard. It's easy to show favoritism. It's easy to show partiality, but showing mercy is hard. But you've, you've saved us with a real faith that should produce love in us and a lifestyle of submissive, loving obedience, Lord. So help us to be faithful to you in this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand as we finish our, out our service. Uh, we're going to skip to at the cross for those of you in the back running PowerPoint. Your glory fills the 
It's a faith that serves you and serves the poor and serves each other as the body and members of Christ, Lord God. Pray that we would remember that and that our focus would be to give you all glory and do that through the living out of our faith as a body of Christ and as individual Christians, Lord God. As we go and go down to fellowship meal, Lord God, I pray that you would be glorified that uh, the body of Christ would be living and active and that we'd be able to fellowship in truth and fellowship in your word and fellowship in your name. We just pray these things in your name. Amen. Sorry, uh, I want to make another uh, statement. I apologize that it is another statement after service. Um, and I don't want it to overshadow a bold uh, mission and um, uh, great worship today and a, and a great sermon. So please bear with me. Um, uh, with with um, the uh, eldership vote coming up, the annual vote, uh, we've, we've talked to... Matt and I have talked to several families, and we, we've talked a little bit about the, uh, the verses regarding elder qualification, but we've never read the elder qualification. Um, and I, I think it's important as a Bible-believing church that we should, uh, as we're nominating elders, to, to discuss that. I'm not trying to uh, direct your thinking anyway. I just think it's good to read the Scripture and let it speak for itself. First um, Timothy 3.2.7. 2 through 7, therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well and with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace and to a snare of the devil. First Titus 1, 5 through 9 says, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not not open to charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. 1 Peter 5, 1-3 so I, so I exhort you, the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as partaker in the glory that this is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that is among you, 
exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have for you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in charge, but be examples to the flock. Uh, as we talked about last week, this is very unique. Uh, you can work in jobs at work, and you define the job description. This is God's job description for, for an elder or overseer. Um, I want to add that the office of the elders is to be shared um, by more than one individual. It is a plurality of elders. Uh, this plurality of elders leverages men of different backgrounds, experiences, careers, ages, and many other factors to be unified in overseeing the church and its people. In November, the church was made aware of a heartbreaking issue. Uh, the pastor began a sabbatical, and the dynamics of the eldership office changed. From that time, with prayer, FPC guidance, numerous meetings, and evolving information, Matt and I have been in full agreement of the decisions that we've made. Matt and I have not arrived at one decision where we differed in opinion, even when we had different initial thoughts or plans. This is a shared office. I stand full um, brotherly and elderly. I don't think I can use the word there, but elderly solidarity with Matt. My probationary year as an elder is up. I see God's providence in my eldership here. I know it was his plan for me to be an elder for this season. However, unforeseen changes in my family, uh, for good, I've become a grandfather. Um, wasn't aware of that um, prior to the eldership. Um, Long hours at work and commuting are taking their toll on me. I'm looking at at, at least 50-hour work weeks. Um, And the recent um, changes in the elder office have left me exhausted. Uh, I no longer aspire to to be an elder here, uh, so I am withdrawing my nomination today uh, and also stepping down as an elder today. Um, We are going on vacation next week, uh, so... Um, I'm kind of giving myself, if I can, a self-imposed sabbatical. We're going to start a vacation uh, basically right here after the service. Uh, then we're going to Florida for, for basically two weeks. So um, uh, There's uh, just th- three things that I, I want to share before I leave. Um, John mentioned it earlier this morning. I have the word pray with three exclamation points. That's not enough. It should go across the whole line. Um, as always, guard your hearts from pride, especially during these times. Uh, also, I ask to, to be patient with God's timing with Pastor Tim and AJ. By all means, uh, we continue our love for them, but we have to be careful not to make hasty or ill-informed decisions that could possibly create a wedge between them. Above all, may Christ be glorified in this church. Thank you.